The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Professor Charles Telfer. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Let's turn our hearts together in prayer. God of Abraham, how amazing it is that you, the God on high, complete in eternity before the the creation itself was made, that you would identify yourself with a sinful human being named Abraham and his descendants, that you are the God of Isaac and Jacob. We bless and we praise you that you are a God who descends to bless us, to do us good. We ask that you would bless us now. We thank you for the privilege of being here. We thank you for the privilege of hearing the challenges and the instruction of the last of recent days in, in the Dendulk lectures. We pray that those uh, challenges and instruction might settle into our minds and, and do us good. And as we open your word now, we pray that you would give us encouragement, Lord, for our pilgrimage. We grow weary. We grow, our, our vision grows dim. We are discouraged as we face loss and setbacks. We ask that you would comfort us, Lord, and prepare us uh, for future loss and enable us to press on rejoicing in what we have in Christ Jesus. Bless us then as we follow in the the faith of our father Abraham. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I invite you to turn with me in God's word to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis 23 as we continue this faculty series on the patriarchs. As we make our pilgrim way to our heavenly homeland together, I think you'll find uh, encouragement from this this text that's often neglected. Uh, Genesis chapter 23, we'll be reading the uh, the whole brief chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of the city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron 
And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the city of his gate. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. It seems to me that after our Lord Jesus and after Moses, perhaps Abraham is the most famous human being that ever lived. He's famous, obviously, amongst the Jews. He's famous amongst Muslims who honor him as a prophet and as one of their physical forebears of the Arabs. He's famous amongst us Christians. Romans 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 16, calls him the father of us all. You'll see that he was famous in his day. Look at verse 6. There we read that the Hittites give him the title Prince of God. Perhaps it was his wealth, his vast herds. Perhaps it was his military success, which was extraordinary, as we read from Genesis 14. Perhaps it was his God, his piety, for which he was known. But he was, he was recognized that he was particularly blessed of God. The people, even in his day, recognized that. From this vantage point that we have as New Testament Christians, we see that he was blessed particularly in that God had given him the gospel. God had given him the promises that one of his descendants, Jesus of Nazareth, would bring blessing not only to him, but to the ends of the earth, even us here at the end of this unknown new world, that we would be blessed in connection with Abraham. Paul expresses it this way in Galatians 3.7. Know then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. There's a lot we could talk about in this text, a lot of interesting cultural details. But let's consider Abraham as a man of faith. And I'd like for us to look at his principal act under two headings then, as we think of him as a man who who received God's promises and who responded in trust and in confidence. So it's really one act, but I'd like for us to consider it first that Abraham buys a tomb, and then secondly, and a little more deeply as we press in on that, that Abraham buys property in Canaan, that is, in the, in the promised land. At one level, the action here in chapter 23 is rather simple. Abraham buys a tomb. And this chapter goes into extraordinary detail about how he buys this tomb. And I find it, if you'll allow me, I find it humorous the way that a number of higher critical and liberal scholars are perplexed by this kind of uh, this kind of text. They don't know uh, what to do with it. For example, uh, Klaus Westermann says of this text, why should a nomad want a piece of property to bury his dead on? And of course, the uh, you know the history of the documentary hypothesis with the JEDP, the source criticism, 
that's a whole uh, and fascinating and important study unto itself. But uh, it doesn't get us very far when it comes to a text like this, that this is often referred to as the P document, the priestly document, the last of the documents, which would be a post-exilic setting, which uh, is uh, problematic on a number of levels, that this, this text, the more we've learned, and especially in the past hundred years, of ancient Near Eastern customs and cultures and literatures, the, more, the, the, the better it fits into a second millennium B.C. cultural context. So even Hittite uh, uh, land transfer documents uh, even mention the, the number of trees on a piece of property that go between two people. So th- this very much fits within a broad Middle Eastern context. You see the deference that's going back, the bargaining between the different parties. This fits very much in its historical uh, the, the context. It also is uh, it's simplistic and sterile to look at Genesis as some kind of, kind of a... Uh, uh, crudely stitched together a uh, series of different sources. This is obviously a very carefully done narrative with a very careful focus on the transfer between the generation of Abraham and Sarah to the next generation of Isaac and Rebekah. If you look, the, the climax, of course, in this whole section is chapter 21, 22, where we have this incredible offering of the son of Abraham, right? What a picture of his greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who goes down who goes down into death, as it were, and then is resurrected up uh, to newness of life. This is an amazing uh, uh, chapter. But at the end of the chapter, we can already see this, this telltale uh, listing of, of Abraham's brother's descendants. So Abraham's brother has 12 descendants, even as Abraham will have 12 sons through his uh, grandson Jacob, setting that up. And mentioning, you'll notice, uh, Rebekah. Rebecca is mentioned, uh, setting up the, the expectation that she will take the place of Sarah, who's leaving the scene here. Very carefully put together. We have two negotiation stories. In chapter 23, we have the negotiation story for the uh, Sarah, her tomb. And in the next chapter, we have the negotiation story for the new matriarch, that is, for Rebecca to take Sarah's place. These are very carefully uh, uh, put together texts. And this text is giving particular honor to Sarah. Particular honor. Did you notice the way it starts out with the high language that it it begins with in verse 2? It says, these are the years of the life of Sarah. It's very exalted. How many other women in scripture can you tell me uh, how long they lived? No one else. This is this is a great honor to Sarah. She's being marked out. 127 years. That's a very long life. This is this is a great honor to Sarah, and this is Abraham's buying Sarah, the Taj Mahal, as it were. You know, Taj Mahal was written for, uh, was bought by the the Shah in India for his wife Mahal. This is the Taj Sarah, so to speak. This is a, a an expensive purchase, and it's in honor of his wife, the matriarch of, of, uh, of the story at this point. You can see the honor given to uh, Sarah in the way that Abraham mourns for her in verse 2. Now, this, this is a marriage uh, that was not without its problems. Abraham, as we've seen twice, he threatens his own wife's chastity and the legitimacy of her descendants when he lies and put, allows her to be taken into two other men's harems. It's a really serious offense against a spouse. 
And yet, here at the end, we see that this is a loving marriage, that he, he loves and seeks to honor her, and he goes to great expense and trouble to bury her. I preached this text in a church on Sunday and during the Sunday school hour when we discussed it, and briefly in the sermon, I didn't want to push it too far, but we talked about the, uh, the, the, uh, the honor and the, uh, the, uh, the Christian nature of burial, that we bury in the hope of the resurrection. don't have time to go into that now, but here in California where, where it's about the money and we do cremation, uh, this might be a text that one could uh, expand to talk about burial as a way of uh, honoring the dead in the hope of a resurrection uh, to come. I know that's a controversial topic, but uh, it is uh, it's perhaps worth uh, considering uh, in, in a congregational setting. You'll notice the amount of money that Abraham pays for this tomb. How much money does he pay? Do you remember how much money uh, Jeremiah paid for his, his, the field that he bought from his cousin? He paid only 17 shekels. Do you remember what David paid for Arana, the Jebusite's prime real estate, just above Jerusalem, where, they, where Solomon built the temple? He only paid a full price of 50 shekels. And yet here is Abraham pay, paying 400 uh, shekels of silver. I dare say that Abraham would have paid 10 times this much because he knew uh, that's a principle by, uh, that was later stated by Jim Elliot, that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There was a lot more at stake in this tomb than just a place to lay uh, a dead body. And I'd like for us to consider that then a little bit deeper. This is Abraham not only purchasing a tomb, but Abraham is purchasing property, a possession in the promised land, in the land of, uh, of uh, Canaan. If you look at the beginning of our text, it mentions there in verse 2 about Hebron, and then it says, in the land of Canaan. Does anybody reading, do you think any of the original readers of this text would not know that Hebron was in the land of Canaan? And then look at the end of the text. It comes back to it again in verse 19. This is an inclusio, right, an envelope structure. It's obviously important. Canaan. Canaan. Who's listening to this text originally? It's those Israelites that are getting ready to go where? Canaan. Canaan. And so even as they are ready to, uh, to carry out and to receive the, the earthly fulfillment of these promises, they look ahead and they see that Abraham has already, by faith, received the beginnings of the fulfillment of those promises. He took possession. He took incontestable title of a section of the Holy Land. Why does he go to so much trouble in this chapter? Here, take one of our tombs. No, I want title. I'm going to pay for it. Incontestable, in front of everyone. Right? He insists on uh, an, uh, a, a, uh, an absolute and undisputed uh, possession to this particular piece of ground. I have a uh, a friend, uh, a retired woman who uh, taught in Paris for many years, she now lives in Brittany uh, with her husband, and they have a small place in uh, downtown, and they call that pied uh, terre uh, which means literally a foot on the ground, just a small place. Their main place is in Brittany. But what does that give to them? That gives them un unrestricted access to all the wonderful things in the city of light. That, that, that little piece that's undisputably uh, belonging to them. And this here is 
Abraham <clears throat> claiming his pied-à-terre, right? This is not just a place for Sarah. This is a place for him. And we see two chapters over, this is where he's buried. Who else is buried here? Almost all his descendants are buried here, right? What does Jacob do? Jacob, his grandson, what effort he insists on being taken, even though he's in, he's in, uh, uh, in Egypt. I want to be buried there. This place is representative of the fulfillment of God's salvation promises to Abraham and all his descendants. This, this piece of property is Abraham's earthly vision, earthly version, I should say, of what we saw in that strange text. If you remember uh, the devotional we had uh, last fall when we talked about Tamar, right? Her rather bizarre and very earthy, holding on with two fists to her connection to the promises of God and the family, right, in the line. This is Abraham in his earthy way of taking two fists and holding on to the promises of God in a very, in a very real estate way, right? He must have this peace. This is a resting place for his bones, for his children's, and his children's children's bones. This is his claiming possession of the, of the promised land. The New Testament text that most illuminates our passage, of course, is Hebrews 11. Would you turn with me there briefly? Hebrews 11, reading in verse 8, if you have your New Testaments. It says there, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. <clears throat> and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, <clears throat> Excuse me. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Let me repeat that. The city that has foundations, whose builder and designer is God. And then in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to, to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Right? A city. You know, I think that the author of this letter to the Hebrews is quoting what Abraham says to the Hittites here. What does he call himself when, they, when he begins his negotiations with them? Right? Look at verse 4 in, in, Isaiah, in uh, Genesis 23. He says, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Here we live with Mexico in our, just down the street and issues of immigration, the rights of immigrants, the lack of rights of immigrants is a big deal in our national discussion at this point, right? Abraham admits, I am a foreigner. I, I am not a normal, I don't have full citizenship rights. I'm an outsider, but nevertheless, do me this. Give me this land. Let me have the right of possession. Let me uh, buy this land. And he is willing even to go down. He goes down. Do you see what he does? He does obeisance to them. That's literally putting his face on the ground. 
That word is used for worship, if you're looking at your Hebrew text, right? He goes down before these, these people, just like his great-great-grandson, who goes down, our Lord Jesus, who comes, the great prince, if there was ever a prince of God, it's he. And he comes down, seeking what he's seeking. And he humbles himself all the way to death, all the way to the ground, and even underneath the ground. He goes through death before being uh, exalted and securing for all of us who are connected to him an honorable resting place that we don't, will never be moved from, an indisputable and uncontested resting place, possession for all of us, right? This is what he achieves for us. And Abraham, by faith, can see this. You know, although Vesterbein called him a nomad, I say that uh, Abraham was an urbane man. I say that Abraham would look on the cities of Palestine as somewhat parochial, as small towns, because Abraham is from Ur, great city. Abraham is from Haran, great Mesopotamian city. Right? He's not from Fallbrook, he's from LA. Right? <laughs> right? And yet Abraham is willing to wait. He's willing to live in Hence, we read in that Hebrews uh, uh, eleven fifteen, Abraham having patiently waited. Right, brothers and sisters, this is our life here: patiently waiting, patiently waiting. We don't get full possession just yet. Do we suffer loss? We suffer loss. We lose people that we love. Do we mourn over them? No, we're Stoics. Yes, we mourn over them. Do we weep when something we love is taken away? Yes, we weep. Right? But we're not staying there. We're looking to that possession that's around the corner. These blessings that Abraham knew inceptively, having the beginnings of it and having it, knowing that it's connected with the land and beyond the land, he, he, he receives that by faith. He trusts in the word of God and he, and he pours out all this money for this. Right? He was promised that all his sins would be forgiven. He was promised that he would see God face to face. We have it in that hymn that we just sang. We would see him face to face. And that he will not judge us, but that he will receive us. That his smile will be upon us. He will be our God giving himself to us. And we will be his people. And our relationship with him will be consummated. And we will enter into the full enjoyment of not just of a, a section there. The cave of Machpelah is nice. You know, you can go there today. It has a nice building. Herod the Great built a great building over. If you want to take a look at the temple, what the temple looked like, go there. It's a nice little temple. Now, the Muslims built stuff over it, but there's a mosque there. But it's a beautiful building, right? But what you're going to have is bigger than any, any building that's ever been. Any land is as fruitful and as nice and and uh, the, the, the weather being as nice as it might possibly be. It's that new heaven and that new earth. It's as when heaven returns and comes to us physically, fully, resurrection power, right? Those are all the blessings that were promised to Abraham. And in, for you, connected to Christ by faith, they're promised to you. Would you join me in prayer? Our Lord, we thank you for promising us all these good things and so much more than can be expressed. We thank you for our brother and father Abraham who walked by faith. And we pray that you give us help, especially if we're passing through the valley, Lord, now. 
We pray that you would give us strength to wait patiently, not to despair or do drastic things. But we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to fix our eyes on the city of lights with all its blessings to come around the corner. Help us then this week and this day, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California, 2019. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.